Sorry to break up good conversation. I'd like to invite you to come back to your seat. We're going to get started. It's really good. It was a good meet and greet time. You introverts excelled. Um, my name is uh, Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road, and we are really, really glad that you're here and honored that you would, uh, especially if you're a guest, honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. I'm going to read the text we're going to be into today, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is where we're going to be. 6.1 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall last, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the Lord was corrupt. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourselves an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh, in which, I, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. There shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the, of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to, in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we dig into a very popular story today, I pray that we would see it with fresh eyes. That if we have presuppositions or preconceptions coming into this, I pray that we'd set them aside and allow your word to speak for itself. And that you would um, soften our hearts 
Prepare us to receive your word. I pray as a result of hearing your voice this morning and learning about who you are and learning about your character that you would change us. You would change our minds, change our hearts, you would change the way we think, you would change the way we feel. I pray that you would change how we live when we leave, when we leave this place. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We were out of town last week. Uh, we went to Atlanta. Uh, my wife, Nicole, had a surgery done. And while we were in Atlanta, we had an opportunity one day to visit the, uh, the National Center uh, for Civil and Human Rights there in Atlanta. And it's a museum. And we visited it, and it's set up very, very well. Uh, if you've been to um, the Oklahoma City Bombing Memorial here in Oklahoma City, it's set up very similar. Um, set up to engage all of your senses. So you walk in, you see pictures, you see video, you hear things, you read things. And there, there, were, there were opportunities for us to, to ex- kind of, they put us in these situations that you would try to, that they help, wanted you to experience what people around the world experience and how people around the world are treated in the past and still today to get you to fully immerse yourself in this, to feel something. And we sure did feel something. And I can't imagine anybody walking through that or going in here would not feel like what we felt. Like you ask questions like, where was God? Where is God? Yes, questions like, how can human beings be so evil to one another? How does that happen. And what you feel when you walk through that is this sense of, of, of injustice, like you want to do something about it. That's the feeling that's, that's brought up when we see these things. And I think that's put there by God when he created us, created in the image of God. That's part of the remnant of the image of God that we still have, that when we see something that is, is wrong, like, um, like most of us in most cases would say, yeah, there's something wrong with that. What, what's happening? What is going on? I think it's been hardwired into every human being. And we've seen injustices on large scales ever since the creation of man and woman. Ever since Adam and Eve, we've seen injustices. And today we're going to continue our series on the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 6 today. We're looking at Noah and the flood and it's a very popular story. I think most of us, even if you're not a church person, you probably have some experience with this, with this narrative. The great flood, the biblical flood. But the one thing to remember as we get into this story, especially chapter 6, is it's told through God's point of view. So when we're reading this, it allows us to actually see what God was seeing. We kind of feel, hopefully, what God is feeling when he looks out on the earth at this time. And so that's hard for us to do. And I think that's going to be challenging for us because oftentimes we read the Bible through our own lenses, through our own minds, and we read it as how it relates to us initially. But we must, in this passage, look at this and read this and ask the question, how was God seeing this? I think we'll be challenged when we do that. The Bible tells us there will become a day, there will come a day when all the injustices will go away. When Jesus comes for a second time, he will set up the new heavens and the new earth and all injustices will be gone. Be an end to that. 
But the Bible also says, even in the New Testament, Jesus says that the, 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 the days leading up to Jesus coming back will be like the days of Noah. If you've noticed that, but they refer back to Noah, and, and, they, and Jesus even says, it'll be like the days of Noah. And I think he could be describing potentially Norman, Oklahoma in 2018. So I'm about to read a passage where Jesus talks about the flood, talks about Noah. And as I'm reading it, I want you to, to read it and to listen in such a way that it could be talking about us in this very place. This very time in history. It's Matthew 24, 36 through 44. It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, this is the one we're talking about today, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken one and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if, a, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. It would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There's a lot that we could get into in that particular passage, but that's not what we're going through today. What I think this helps us with is kind of gives us a framework for reading Genesis 6. And really what that is, is we, we need to understand that God has been unfolding his plan of redemption since the beginning of the world. And Noah is a part of that plan of redemption. The time we're living in now is a part of that plan of redemption. And this kind of describes that people in those days, Jesus says, they'll, they'll just kind of go, they'll marry and be given to marry, basically going through their normal everyday activities with no mind to God. No, pay, no, not paying attention to the purposes of God, what could be coming. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is, don't do that. Wake up. Be ready. And so I think that should be kind of the feeling that we have as we walk through Genesis 6. And no, not see it as this ancient story that maybe we can pull some principles out of. It is that, but that is a minimal baseline view of it. Okay? There's so much in this narrative that connects to our time right now. So, some background on Genesis 6. The main character of this narrative is not Noah, it is God. And we start into these, some of these stories and we, we kind of just grab onto the main character and we don't we tend to think about God, but God is the main character of the story and Noah just happens to be the guy that God is using to show himself and to reveal himself to creation and as we read it, to us. And now the flood account, like other narratives in Genesis, leave a lot of questions unanswered. 
Okay? A lot of us want to know details about the flood, this and that, and we're not going to get into that today. We're not going to go onto those tangents of trying to answer questions about how and the nature of the flood and all these things. We're going to stick to what I believe that the scripture wants us to know about the flood. But I'll say if you are a Bible-believing Christian, then you should believe the flood happened. Jesus refers to it. The New Testament writers refer to it. So we must believe that there was a biblical flood. Now, was it a worldwide flood or was it a flood just for the known world at the time? There's debates. What's the deal with the animals? How did the ark thing work out? How does that all work? The scriptures, doesn't tell, the scriptures don't tell us, which means that speculation is fine, but that's not the main point of the narrative of Noah. Okay, so we want to stick kind of with the main facts here um, and not run off on these tangents. But they're okay to speculate, and you can go do research on your own. There are a lot of different viewpoints on those things. But for us, the flood happened, and what does this mean? How is God revealing his character through the flood? Verses 1 through 4, I'll say, it's an odd paragraph. Maybe the, maybe the most um, strange four verses in all of scriptures. I mean, it's like... In seminary, this is like the legendary passage that it's like the professors will give the students to say, figure it out, because I don't know. That's professors saying this, okay? So lots of debate. There are viewpoints. I'll try to remember to post something this week of the different views on what's, what in the world is happening in these four verses. But for our purpose today, it, this is either a just kind of a random time period that between um, Cain and Abel and Noah that is kind of thrown in there just to kind of keep us up with the historical record, or it could be setting up what we're going to talk about today in verse 5. So either way, it doesn't have a major impact on what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to jump, on ver- jump into verse 5, but I read 1 through 4 just so you can have some context about what we're getting into. So Genesis 6 verse 5, let's do it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So humanity, God is looking at humanity. And it has gotten so bad since Adam and Eve and, and what happened in Genesis 3 in the garden. It's gotten so bad that God's like, I've had enough. From an individual standpoint and as a collective standpoint, humanity has gone way off the deep end. To call, to call something evil is really strong. Like when we say in our life, when we say that was pure evil, like usually we've seen something just horrific. So God is using, he's saying people are evil. The people have become evil. It's that at least it's, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. What you have for us is not good. I'm going to go my own way. I think I know what's best for me. All the blessings you've given me, the food you've provided, all of the basics that you've provided. Nah, I'm going to act like you don't exist and I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing. That's at least what humanity was doing. But we could talk all day of what, what, what's it mean when it says evil continually. We saw that a little bit with Cain and Abel. Like, siblings killing siblings. Okay? Maybe stuff we see at a human rights museum, civil rights museum. Okay? This is what was happening on the earth. 
Okay, and it's just not the really bad, it's not just actions either. It says inclinations of their hearts. So it's not saying, hey, just what they do is bad. It's saying what they're thinking about is bad, what their motives are is bad. Every inclination of their hearts is evil. So that thing, that, 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 that passing thought that you had last week, God knows about it. That thing that you don't want anybody else to know about that you're hiding, God knows about it. When you did that really nice thing last week, but you did it for really bad motivations, God knows about it. This is part of his character. He's sovereign. He's all-knowing. He knows the depths of our hearts. And we'll see later, that's really scary, but it's also really, really good. We'll get to that a little bit later. Let's look at verse 6. We see God, once again here, from his vantage point, starting to process this. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Now we get into the mind of God here. This is what's interesting. Like we get behind the scenes, God is processing this. He's processing that what has happened. What have I done? Have I made a mistake? I mean, this just kind of gets into the, 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 the psyche of God. And one thing to note, this is God not flying off the handle in just violent rage, okay? It's not what it is. God's thinking. He's reflecting. He's asking himself questions, okay? He's reflecting on what is going on here. He's not reacting mindlessly in a violent way. And it says it grieved him to his heart. The heart of God was grieved. And today, our sin, even today, our sin grieves God. It grieves him. But you also see that God is slow to anger. One of the the, the phrases the scripture uses is long-suffering. This means that God is patient in, 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 in waiting for us to come back to him, to turn our face back to him. And 120 years is the time frame that's mentioned in verse 3 of this chapter. Most commentators say that it's actually giving the time frame from when uh, God first came to Noah and Noah actually building the ark and the floods came. Most commentators think it was actually 120 years. So for 120 years, that's a long time, God says, this is what I'm going to do, and then actually sending the flood. Noah had a lot of time. It was a big ark, right? 120 years. God is patient, He's hoping that humanity will change their ways. He's hoping that humanity will change their rebellion. God is patient. And then we skip ahead a few verses to verses 11 through 13, and we kind of see what God is going to do about this rebellion. And if you still aren't convinced that Noah isn't a cute children's story, you're about to get it right here, okay? Verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all the flesh, of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay? This is God's judgment on humanity. God has decided what he's going to do. God is a judge. That's part of his character. That comes with the love and the grace and the mercy. God is a judge. And when God sees something, 
he has to act according to his character or he's not perfect. So when God sees injustice, God sees rebellion, God sees sin, and he is holy, God has to act according to his character and nature. If he doesn't, he's not perfect, okay? Like if, if a judge has something in front of them, and we all get this in, in, our, in our culture, our world, if, if a judge, judge sees something in front of them and has to make a verdict and the evidence is clear, it is a clear slam dunk case and the judge says, no, that wasn't that bad. I'm not going to give due punishment for this. That, he would be an evil judge. He would not be a righteous judge. So when God sees everything that is happening, he, he has to act according to his character. If he doesn't, he isn't just. If he isn't just, he's not holy and perfect. If he's not that, he's not loving. If he's not loving and he's not any of those other things, he is not worth worshiping. So if you start to kind of pull, pull away God's wrath and his justice, if you don't want to deal with that, you start pulling a thread that's going to unwind everything that we typically like about God. You can't have one without having another, the other. I mean, these are, this is an obvious, this is like, like you know, famous, in, in my famous uh, crime when a guy by the name of Michael Scott Runs over one of his co-workers called Meredith. Yeah, parking lot. Like, it's clear. Like, Michael even confesses to it. He says, I've done this. Okay, so, I mean, in that situation, everyone knows Michael did it. He admitted to it. It's a slam dunk case. Now, Michael doesn't get punished. He takes credit that he saved her from, from rabies. Um, somehow he gets out of that. But anyway, like, what my, my point is, is that it, it's obvious the, the crime is obvious. God is just in judging humanity. So we see God's holiness and his justice on full display in these verses so far. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 and 9. But Noah, let's look at Noah now. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, or righteous. Noah walked with God. The word favor there in verse 8 actually can be translated grace. Okay, they don't translate it grace into English because it sounds weird when you say that sentence. Favor actually is a better English use of that word for that context, but it can actually be translated grace. So what he's saying is Noah found, God showed him grace. He found grace in God. And we know by the, the rest of the Bible and by definition, like grace can't be earned. If you earn grace, it ceases to be grace. Okay, doesn't make sense. And, and even it doesn't say that Noah earned or won favor in the eyes of the Lord. It says, but Noah found favor. It said he found it. So God shows Noah grace. Shows Noah grace. And when it says Noah was righteous, it doesn't mean that he was the, the most holy guy out there. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It doesn't mean he was that much different than everyone else and how he acted and behaved. Verses 5 through 7, Noah is brought into that judgment. It's, it's the whole earth. Every human being is evil in all their inclinations, in their, in their heart's inclinations, okay? And we see after the flood, Noah messes up in chapter 9. Like it doesn't, after the flood, it doesn't go too far, and we see Noah is not a perfect man. But God chooses to show Noah grace. And Noah believes what God tells him and has faith 
in who God is and what he says is going to happen. L- listen to Hebrews eleven seven, Gives us an idea here. Goes, and once again, references Noah. He says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. We've seen that. So those events hasn't, haven't happened. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay? So he believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. He, he, he was given faith, okay, through grace. So the important thing to know is Noah wasn't like this rock star guy. He walked with God but it's because he was shown grace and favor and he had faith that God would do what he said he was going to do. This verse is just consistent with the rest of the scriptures that, that faith comes through grace. We're accepted by God, not of our own righteousness, but of the righteousness given to us in Christ. So we're starting to see another characteristic of God here. He shows his wrath, but he's also showing his mercy. Noah doesn't deserve to be saved, but yet God chooses to save Noah and not wipe him out with the rest of the earth. Now, this is important. These two things, these two things are converging. His, his, his mercy and his wrath converge. And really, the, the, the apex of this is at the cross. Okay, his, his mercy and his justice and wrath converge at the cross. So if, if we don't hold on to God's wrath, which is the thing that we kind of don't want to talk about in our culture sometimes, we should just remove grace and mercy from our vocabulary. We should throw it out. Because if there's no justice, if there's no wrath, then there's no need for grace and mercy. So we can't be a people who love to talk about grace and mercy, but also not be aware of God's wrath. And he's just, and he will punish sin. So again, Noah, because he was a man of faith, he does everything God asked him to do. It says in Genesis 6, at the last verse of the chapter, after all those directions were given to him, he says he did all that God commanded him. And he noticed that God wasn't general in his commands. I mean, when you get into the ark, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, he was very, very specific. And I think he was trying to see if God, he was test, maybe testing his faith. Trying to show, is this faith legit from Noah? And Noah's obedience to the specific commands of God are evidence of his faith. They're fruit of what's inside of him. He talks about using gopher wood. It has to be 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in breadth, 30 cubits in height. There's a certain amount of decks, all the directions about the animals we're going to see. All of those things are very, very specific. Why are they so specific? I think God wanted to see, is Noah going to obey him? Is Noah going to live out the faith that he has in God now? It's evidence of his faith. So, one of the things I want to address, it's common in our culture, and really maybe even in the church, it's say that this isn't fair. It's really not fair of God to wipe out the whole earth other than these eight people, Noah's family. But if you actually stop and and just realize what you're saying here, what we're asking We're basically putting ourselves in the judgment seat of God and telling God what he has, what he can do and what he can't do. Us as human beings who who struggle in our day-to-day lives keeping our stuff organized are actually backing God into a corner and saying, you don't have the right to do this. You're not being fair here. 
And we're, we're, we're kind of defining what fairness means, what justice means um, for God. We're, we're p- putting him on the stand and making ourselves judge. And if you think about it that way, that is very arrogant of us as humans to put ourselves in that position over God. God is judge. He is God. Built into his def- definition of God, he is the one on the judgment seat. It's arrogant of ourselves to put us in a place of God. I mean, when I, and, I, and I'm guilty of this. When I get angry about something when I'm in this, the civil rights center. God, where were you at? What's going on? And, and, but, but yet, I, I'm, I'm a guy who can't even keep his inbox at zero. And I want to make moral declarations about what's right and wrong in the earth. Now, those of you who are probably judging me, you zero inbox people, you judging me right now. Like, let's go into your life. I'll find something that you ain't got organized. I promise. I'll do it. Whatever you got or, don't got organized, like, do you, now you want to put yourself as judge over the cosmic universe? It's just, it's arrogant. It's silly of us to put ourselves in this position as human beings. And if we just look, have, be a little self, have self-awareness of who we are, I think we will see that. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's okay to, to question, to wrestle, to say, why God? Why are you doing this? And crying out and asking for justice to happen. I'm not saying you can do that. But there's a level of humility in saying, your ways are higher than my ways. I don't get it. But gosh, I want things to change. I want, I want things to change and to pray for that and to work towards that. But when we start to put ourselves in the judgment seat and say, God, that's not right. You can't do this. That's where we've lost humility and pride has kicked in there. We just, if we're going to question, we should do it with some humility and realize we are the creature and we're talking to the creator. So God is perfect and holy and he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. So the just thing for God to do here is to bring forth his wrath on all creation. That's the just thing to do. We all deserve God's justice. And we'll like that here in a second. But we all deserve God's justice. We, we, we none of us deserve God's mercy. We all deserve God's justice because that's who he is. We don't all deserve God's mercy. And we see in this story, we see his justice and his wrath on display in the flood, the water. But we see his mercy and his love in sparing Noah and his family. Noah and his family did not deserve to live. And this is a preview. This is a pointer or a, even a, a trailer, if you're into movies, like a trailer of the gospel. It's preparing us for the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. God saved Noah's family by hiding them in the ark. He, he saves us by hiding us in Jesus. It's the gospel. Noah was saved by faith because he believed in the promises that God would spare him if he built the ark. So Noah said, sure, I believe. We are saved and we believe in who Jesus is and what he has done. God's wrath was poured out in this story on humanity through the flood. The best news is that God's wrath was poured out for sinful human beings onto his son. This is where justice, we really like justice now. Because God was just in what he did to Jesus because sin had to be punished. But boy, is that good news for us. Those who have faith and belief in who Jesus is and what he has done, 
This is really, really good news for us. We become Noah in this story. Listen to Romans 5, 6 through 8. It's very clear, Paul talking exactly about this idea. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God poured his wrath out on Jesus for us while we were still sinners and undeserving of that love. And hopefully you see, if if you remove the justice of God from what happened to Jesus, Jesus' death was pointless and barbaric and totally out of the character and nature of God. If nothing it was accomplished, if Jesus didn't take the wrath of God, that that was a pointless, horrific, barbaric death of Jesus because it it served absolutely no purpose. But if you believe in the wrath of God, if you hold that as a part of his character, his justice, then what Jesus went through makes perfect sense. Now, like I said, this this passage is about God, but I think we can learn a few things as we kind of start to wrap up here. There are some things I think we can learn from Noah to get practical here and how he responded, okay? So now let's shift to Noah and ask, based off of how God interacted with him, how does Noah respond? Well, I think the first thing he does to respond to God's grace is he worships. We'll see next week that the very first thing he did when he gets out of the ark as the waters uh, receded is he makes an offering of thanksgiving to God. He says thanks because he knows what God just did for him. The grace and mercy he's been shown he praises, he gives thanks for that. And here's what, this is the part where for me, at least this is where this produces worship. We talked at the beginning that God knows everything about you. The darkest, darkest things you want nobody to know, God knows them. And how loving is it for God to know that about you and still love you enough to send his only son to the slaughter? Like, to be loved unconditionally in that way in every part of you based off of what he's done in Jesus, like, that should produce worship. No more hiding from God. There's no, like, hey, do these things so God will love you a little bit. No. He knew all of your junk. He knows all the junk you're going to do from this point forward, and yet he still loves you because of his son. That should cause us to worship. Here in a minute, when we sing, think about that. Let that move you to sing loud. Let it move you to, to worship for him for who he is. Now, kind of on the flip side of this is what this should also, all this, this, this account, and this is number two, there should be a little bit of fear in us. If we don't have a, some holy fear of the character of God, we probably are kind of ignoring some parts of the scripture. There should be some holy fear when it comes to God. You think Noah, after witnessing what he witnessed, like complete wipeout of the earth after he gets out of the ark? Yeah, I think he's, I think he's probably have some holy fear of God now moving forward. And that's probably going to help him stay engaged with God. Along with the grace and the mercy, he has this holy fear of the character and nature of God. So that's number two. Number three, there's this we read this story, he trusts in the promises of God. So after, yes, we've been saved. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, you have faith. What do you do about the promises laid out in scripture? What do you do about tomorrow? What do you do about next year? God speaks to that in his scriptures. 
but do we trust God enough to believe in his future promises? Imagine Noah, he gets this news. Okay, build this ark. Probably going to take his land because he has somewhere, he has to build it somewhere. That land was probably their sustenance. That's how they, back then, that's how they made their raising cattle or farming or whatever it was. He had to use his land to build this ark. He seems like a fool because he's building this dumb, you know, ship in the, on, the, on land, no water around, like he's getting ridiculed for this. And yet for 120 years, he believes and he trusts in the promises of God. That's a lesson for us. Do we believe and trust in the future promises of God? Enough to sacrifice, enough to be embarrassed, enough to say things to maybe talk to people about Jesus when it feels awkward or we feel foolish like having a conversation with somebody and being a little bit nervous about what they think. Imagine 120 years working on a boat in the middle of dry land. Are you kidding me? The, the, uh, the ridicule and the, the per- verbal persecution that Noah was facing, and yet Noah believed. So do we have the trust that, that Noah has in the promises of God? And lastly, I think this ties into mission. Here's how, that Noah was chosen to be a vehicle of grace and mercy to the rest of the earth. Even in, in the moment, I'm, I'm guessing if people would have turned, turned, their, turned their ways and turned around and stopped the rebellion, I don't know, God probably would have led them on the ark. Obviously that didn't happen, but for sure after the ark, the promise made to Noah is, I'm gonna start over with you. I'm gonna save people to myself through you and your descendants. And we get into Abraham and then it starts from there. So God... All this was kind of built up, and the theme underneath all of it is God wants to save a people to himself from all tribes, tongues, and nations, and Noah became kind of the restarter of that in this story. So like Noah, we've been given a very clear mission to make disciples. The grace that we've been shown, like Noah was shown, doesn't stop with us. It doesn't terminate with us. It extends. It moves out. It, it, it influences other people around us. So do you see God saving you kind of as the first step into mission? You're now a vehicle God wants to use to see people come to know him. That other people would hear the good news and receive his grace and his mercy and see their lives changed. But imagine back to Noah, think about once he receives this news, how much his life's going to change. I mentioned having to give up his land to build the thing. Like his life, these 120 years, he took an immediate right turn. Like his life will never be the same after accepting this fact that he needed to build an ark. The urgency he had. He knew that flood was coming and he changed his life because he knew. And this is back to the beginning. Do we trust and believe that we are caught up in God's plan of redemption? And when he saves us, we should never be the same. Our lives should be about God's plan of redemption and how we fit into that story. Noah knew that any time when that water started and I build this ark, people will perish. People will die. I'm sure Noah was telling them, you need to repent You need to turn. You need to get on the ark. It's coming. Do we believe that there's a day when Jesus will return? Like Jesus said in Matthew, I will return setting up the new heavens and the new earth and time will be out. 
So there's this urgency of mission and reorient our, any, reorienting our lives for his mission and his glory now that we have to feel. If we become a Christian and nothing changes in our life, I'm not sure we're bought in to the plan and purposes of God as he moves this thing forward. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, once again for revealing your character in this story. Um, we talk about and want, to, and want to not shy away from things like your wrath and your justice and your judgment. And if we read the Bibles, we don't, we don't have to shy away from it. It's there. It's from beginning to end. And I, I, I pray that we wouldn't be offended by that, but that we would allow that to cause us to reflect on our lives and maybe on the lives of other people around us and create some urgency on our, on our end. That we wouldn't run from this, that we would move into it and, and, and it, would, it would move us towards Jesus. And if we're, if we're saved, if we have faith, I pray this would lead to worship. And if there's people in this room who don't know God's grace and his mercy and don't have faith in Jesus, I pray that this would create urgency so that we wouldn't just go about our normal everyday lives like God's not going to end this thing one day. So I pray as we move into a time of communion that you would meet us in this space and you would um, connect with us and you would guide us and you would um, just change us through your spirit. It's for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.